you have a Bible, would you open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3? Two weeks ago, we took a break from our study of the Gospel of Mark in order to give our attention to the vital and urgent issue of church leadership. And this is because, starting in September, we will begin receiving nominations for the two ordained offices of leadership in the New Testament church, the office of elder and of deacon. In our first study, we asked the question, what is an elder? And we sought to answer that question by looking at the names of the office. There are three words used interchangeably, pastor, overseer, and elder, all of which refer to the same position of leadership. We looked at the origin of the office. The New Testament elders of the church are based upon the Old Testament elders of Israel. We looked at the responsibilities of the office. What do elders do? They lead, they teach, and they shepherd the flock. We looked at the accountability of the office, noticing that elders are accountable to the group of elders as a whole. They're accountable to the congregation, and they are accountable fundamentally and primarily to God. And we looked at the plurality of the office. No church, no matter how small, should have only one elder by God's design and his biblical command. In our second study, last week we began by exploring the issue of vocational, that is paid elders, working alongside non-vocational, that is non-paid elders, and the importance of raising up particularly those non-vocational, non-staff elders from within the church. We then embarked upon the question of who is an elder, and that's where we find ourselves this morning. Last week, we began to explore the biblical qualifications for the office of elder using 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 as our guide. Last week, we were able to look at three of those qualifications. Number one, an elder is a man. Number two, an elder is a called man. And number three, an elder is an irreproachable man. He's above reproach. Today, we're going to continue our look at those biblical qualifications down through verse 7. Now, I understand that sermons like this don't jazz up everybody, right? This is not your favorite subject to deal with. This is probably your, some of you are probably waiting for us to get through these months of August in order to get back into the Gospel of Mark, and I understand that. What I, what I ask and plead for you, though, is to understand the vital importance of this issue to the life of this church. As the leaders of the church go, so go the church. The health of the sheep is dependent upon the health of the shepherds. And so you have a vested interest in this topic. This topic is supremely relevant to you. So I want you to challenge yourself, challenge your own brain as we go through this and think through these, these issues of qualifications, knowing that just just the mere act of sitting and listening and considering and then finally praying that God would raise up these kind of men, just by doing that, you are building into the health of this church. So take this journey along with me this morning as we continue. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get 
right to it. The fourth qualification listed by Paul deals with the elder's marriage and his sexual purity. Simply put, an elder is to be a moral man. That's my understanding of the phrase, mios gunaikos andra, which almost every English translation renders as husband of one wife. This qualification has, without a doubt, sparked more debate than all of the other qualifications combined. But as I once heard Alistair Begg state it, uh, this debate has caused a great deal of heat, but not a great deal of light. Lots of people have very strong opinions about this, but there hasn't, there hasn't been a lot of intelligent talk about it. So what does Paul mean when he says that an elder must be the husband of one wife? More specific to our context here at First Baptist Nixa, what does Paul intend by this phrase, or who rather, does Paul intend by this phrase to exclude from the office of eldership? Does he intend to exclude divorced men from serving as elders or as deacons? As you see in verse 11, the same qualification is listed for that office. With the amount of ground that we need to cover this morning, I don't have time to answer this question in the detail that it demands, but I have written a short position statement on this topic in which I give nine reasons why divorced men are not necessarily disqualified from serving as an elder or a deacon. I've made those copies available. There's only 25 of them. I can make more, but I didn't want to be overly ambitious. They're they're, uh, available on the Connect desk at the end of this message for those who are interested. Historically speaking, there have been five major interpretations of the phrase, husband of one wife. And I want to give you the briefest of overviews and kind of survey those five views. The first view is the no unmarried men view. This view says that Paul is instructing that elders must be married. They must be the husband of one wife. An unmarried man, whether because of singleness or death or divorce, is therefore unqualified to serve as an elder of the church because he's not the husband of one wife. Uh, My opinion is, is that this view should be rejected out of hand because... Neither the Apostle Paul nor the Lord Jesus were married, and the Bible speaks quite approvingly of of singleness, particularly for the purpose of ministry. So I don't think this view is valid, and I'm going to reject it. Secondly, there's the no remarried men view. Paul is instructing, according to this view, that elders must have been married only once, husband of one wife. A single man, a man in his first marriage, or a widower is qualified to serve as an elder, but any remarried man, whether a remarried divorcee or a remarried widower, is unqualified to serve as an elder. I think the second view ought to be rejected on the grounds that the Bible approves of the remarriage of widows and widowers in places like 1 Corinthians 7 and Romans 7 and 1 Timothy 5, and I think it can be legitimately argued It approves of the remarriage of divorced persons in certain circumstances. I would refer you to Matthew 5.32 and 1 Corinthians 7.15. So I reject that view. 
The third view, which has gained some traction in the history of the church, is the no polygamous men view. This view says that what Paul is instructing is that elders must be married to only one woman at a time. Polygamists, thus, are forbidden to serve as elders of the church. Now, I'm going to tell you there's more merit to this view than might first meet the eye, not the least of which is that it is the interpretation of some of the most trusted theologians in the history of the church, men like John Chrysostom in the 4th century and John Calvin in the 16th century and D.A. Carson, Wayne Grudem in our, in our own generations. But there's one major strike against it, and it's a big one in my opinion. 1 Timothy 5.9. In 1 Timothy 5.9, the same grammatical construction, only in reverse, is used with regard to the ministry of widows in the church. In that passage, Paul says, a widow is to be put on the list. This is a list of widows who are going to receive the church's provision and are also going to be doing particular ministries within the church, service ministries. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one husband, the wife of one man. While polygamy, okay, that's one husband, multiple wives, may have been practiced in the first century, it's quite certain that polyandry, that's one uh, wife, many husbands, was not. And so for Paul to use the same construction in 1 Timothy 5 as he does in 1 Timothy 3 would imply that Paul had a, the same or a similar meaning in mind. So I think that the no polygamous men view should be cautiously rejected, which brings us to number four, no divorced men. This view says that what Paul is forbidding is divorced men serving as elders. Remarried widowers, however, are qualified to serve as elders. This, this was the dominant view in generations past. This was the dominant view in the church that I grew up in, um, probably is the dominant view in the churches that you grew up in. Um, however, from, from my perch here at First Baptist Nixa, I see the influence of this view waning across the evangelical landscape. For instance, I have somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 uh, commentaries and even more books that are written on the issue of uh, eldership. And I think only one of maybe 10 to 15 books advocates for this view and it does so rather reservedly. So I see this view kind of waning out of the evangelical picture. In favor of this view, three reasons are often cited. Three arguments are often cited. Argument number one is that the Bible consistently condemns divorce and remarriage, except in the case of adultery, Matthew 19.9, and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, 1 Corinthians 7.15. Therefore, this view states, to ordain a divorced elder would be to condone what the Bible condemns. Okay, that's argument number one. Argument number two says, you know what? We live in a society in which divorce is rampant. Half of all, divorce, or all marriages end in divorce which is not so different than it was in the first century in both the Jewish and the Greco-Roman cultures. Therefore, so says this view, the church must maintain the standards of biblical marriage and set an example for the culture 
by only ordaining as elders those men who have never been divorced. And then argument number three is that the Bible clearly says that an elder must be the husband of one wife, and a man who is divorced and remarried is the husband of two wives. Those are generally the arguments that are put forward in defense of the no-divorced men view. Now, I don't hold this view, and I'm going to give you about five counterpoints to those arguments, okay? So just follow through with me. By the way, don't give yourself a stroke trying to take notes. This is in that position paper in the back if you're interested in checking and tracking down the cross-references. All right, against this view, I want to make five counterpoints. Number one, the qualification husband of one wife is given in the present tense, as are all of the qualifications in this passage. I want you to remember what we established last week, that Paul is painting a present portrait of an elder and of a deacon, not a past portrait, not even a lifetime portrait. To be consistent, therefore, if we forbid divorced men from serving as elders or deacons, we must also forbid former drunkards, as well as men who were formerly greedy or formerly impatient or formerly given to violence or men who have in, at any time in any way failed to live above reproach. That would be the consistent hermeneutic. In short, if we're going to say that no divorced men can serve in the office of elder and ignore the present tense of these qualifications, then we're going to have to exclude everyone with a sinful past if we're going to be consistent all the way through. But this would be a denial of the very gospel that the church is called to proclaim. Surely, I made the case last week, we need to interpret the qualifications for leadership in the new covenant church, in light of the new covenant gospel, which is the foundation of the church. Counterpoint number two. The argument which says that the church needs to uphold biblical standards for marriage only by ordaining, or by only ordaining, elders and deacons who have never been divorced, I think that runs into the same problem of inconsistency. Should the church uphold the Bible's standard for generosity by ordaining only those men who have never been greedy? Should the Bible uphold, or should the church uphold the Bible's standard of self-control and moderation by only ordaining those men who have never been alcoholics or gluttons or drug addicts? I mean, where do we draw the line in terms of consistency? Counterpoint number three. If the Bible allows for divorce and remarriage in the case of adultery, Matthew 19, and abandonment, 1 Corinthians 7, and other places, then it is inconsistent for the church to forbid biblically divorced and remarried men from serving as elders or deacons because their divorce and subsequent remarriage is not sin and therefore does not render them or does not disqualify them, rather, from being above reproach. They haven't sinned, so how are they not above reproach, which is the driving characteristic for both elders and deacons? I would ask you the question of what sin has the victim of adultery or abandonment committed in order to bring reproach upon himself? Counterpoint number four, if Paul had wanted to exclude from leadership any man who has been divorced, 
he could have easily have said something like having never been divorced or having never divorced his wife or having been married only once or any number of different constructions and he would have cleared up all confusion. The problem is he doesn't say that. In fact, though he uses the word elsewhere in his writings, neither of the Greek words for divorce, apoluo or korizo, neither of them occur anywhere in this passage. Counterpoint number five. To say that a divorced and remarried man is now the husband of two wives is doubtful at best. The Bible doesn't speak that way. Remarriage to a different spouse by definition, severs the previous marriage bond. Deuteronomy 24, I would list as a reference for that. Or what about John 4? You remember Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well where he says, go call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. Here's what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, you're wrong. You have five husbands. What does he say? No. You're correct in saying you don't have a husband. You have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. So he makes a distinction in these marriages. This is especially evident, I think, in the case of those who have been lawfully divorced due to their spouse's immorality. Why else would Jesus make an exception, like except for immorality, when equating remarriage with adultery unless divorce due to marital unfaithfulness effectively severed the marriage covenant? Therefore, the remarriage in such cases is not adulterous, which is what Jesus says. In summary, I believe the no-divorced-men view ought to be rejected due to its numerous exegetical, that is, textual, and logical problems. In fact, I think that those who would forbid all remarried men, this was Tertullian's view and the view of several church fathers, I think they're actually more consistent than those who hold to this view. And I think there's a better way, which is the fifth view, which says that what Paul is forbidding is immoral men from serving as elders or deacons. No immoral men says that Paul is not referring to marital status at all, but rather is speaking to marital fidelity, that is faithfulness in marriage, and moral purity. An elder must be a one-woman man. That, I think, is the best way to interpret Paul's statement. Paul is forbidding immoral men from serving as elders and deacons. Or to state the case positively, I think the portrait Paul is painting shows an elder to be a moral man who is faithful to his wife in word, in thought, and in deed. In favor of this view, I'm going to make four points. So there were five counterpoints here, four points in favor of this view. Here's argument number one. Husband of one wife is literally translated man of one woman. Flip that around and make it more conversational. One woman man. I think that's the translation that makes the best sense of the context. 
In this case, what Paul is speaking to is not marital status, but moral character, and in particular, sexual morality. The qualification that an elder or a deacon be a one-woman man would thus disqualify those whose moral character is suspect and reproachable due to adultery or fornication or pornography or even flirtatiousness. Argument number two, if husband of one wife does refer to marital status, then it leaves several questions unanswered. Does an elder or deacon have to be married? How exactly is an unmarried man the husband of one wife? Isn't he the husband of no wife? Or or what about a remarried widower? Is he not the husband of two wives? Or what about a biblically divorced man who remains unmarried? Isn't he still the husband of one wife so long as he remains unmarried? See what I mean? It doesn't answer the necessary questions. But on the other hand, if Paul meant that an elder or deacon must be a one-woman man, then I think his point is abundantly clear. An elder or deacon must be a man with an exemplary reputation of marital faithfulness and sexual morality. Argument number three, and I think this is the strongest one in my view. Four times in Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, Galatians 5, and Ephesians 5, Paul gives us what are called vice lists. You're familiar with those. Those are the lists of sins which, if a person, even a professing Christian, continues in them, render them unfit for the kingdom of heaven right? Don't be deceived, Paul will say, like in 1 Corinthians 5, neither sexually immoral, nor fornicators, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor drunkards, nor greedy, nor covetous will inherit the kingdom of heaven, right? You familiar with those passages? Four times. In every one of those lists, guess what's number one at the top? Sexual immorality. And so when Paul turns around and he gives us a list of virtues which are to be supremely evident in the life of a man to be considered as an elder or a deacon, if Paul was so concerned with sexual immorality as being a vice, in fact the vice of vices, if it's first in the list every time, doesn't it stand to reason that when he gives a virtue list, the list of characteristics that need to be present if a man's to be considered as an elder, that sexual morality would top the list? And yet, when you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 or Titus chapter 1, you won't see any reference to sexual morality at all, unless... That's what Paul means by saying that he must be a one-woman man, and he means it so intensely that he puts it first. See what I'm saying? Especially when we look at the lists side by side, the, the lists of elders and deacons and the lists of vices and sins that will prevent someone from entering the kingdom of heaven if they're continued in an unrepentance. And you'll notice that there's a correspondence between the lists. Drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. He must not be a drunkard. Greedy people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. He must not be a lover of money. 
covetous people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is a man who needs to be content with what God has given him. I think that's a strong point. If Paul felt so strongly about the issue of sexual immorality, to put it at the top of every one of his lists, why would he leave it out in the list of qualifications that need to be present in the life of an elder? I don't think he does. I think that's exactly what he means by one woman man. And number four, following closely upon the last point, the absence of sexual morality in the lists of qualifications would be quite strange given Paul's repeated emphasis on sexual purity throughout his letters, unless, of course, Paul intends for us to understand this qualification, one woman man, to speak of the man's sexual character. I think, again, this understanding makes the best sense of the biblical text as a whole. A man may have been divorced and yet, or may have never been divorced and yet not be a one-woman man. You can not be a one-woman man and have a blameless marital record. Consequently, a man may have been divorced and now be a one-woman man. So who is disqualified from serving as an elder or a deacon in light of the phrase, husband of one wife, or as I like to translate it, one-woman man? What are we looking for? We're looking for a man who is faithful to his wife, who has a long-established record of sexual morality and purity, and who is absolutely committed to his marriage vows. That's what we're looking for. He needs to have a character of one-woman man built not over months, but over long years. That's why I stress that divorce does not necessarily disqualify a man from serving as an elder or deacon. The circumstances of the divorce may indeed disqualify him. If he was unfaithful to his spouse, if he proved uncommitted to his marriage vows, in those cases, the congregation would need to determine in light of the circumstances, in light of the amount of time elapsed, in light of the man's present sexual morality and marital fidelity, whether or not such a man remains above reproach and is therefore qualified to serve. There's a lot more that could be said about that, but we've got to go on. The next qualification, the fifth in the list that we find, is that an elder is a self-controlled man. John Stott described this qualification as self-mastery. In other words, a man, an elder must be a man who has mastered his own passions and appetites and is not mastered by them. Under this heading, I'm going to group seven words that occur in verses two and three. Look down there with me. Therefore, an overseer must be, here they are, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle and not quarrelsome. All right, each of those words describe a man who is not mastered by his flesh, but rather is master of his flesh because he exhibits the fruit of the Spirit that is self-control. So let's go through these words. The first word that appears in this group is sober-minded. King James translates the word as vigilant. New American Standard has temperate. 
The Greek word actually refers to a state of sobriety. It literally means not drunk. But since Paul specifically addresses the issue of alcohol a little further down, I think it more likely that what he has in mind in this word sober-minded is the more metaphorical meaning of someone who is clear-headed, whose mind and judgment is not impaired by his passions and his appetites. Now, the reason why I place this word sober-minded under the heading of self-controlled is because it's generally an excess of something that prevents us from being clear-headed and vigilant and sober-minded. Alcohol can definitely have that effect, but so can other things. Other excesses can dull the mind just as effectively. In my estimation, gluttons, sluggards, gluttons who eat too much, sluggards who are lazy and sleep too much, television, video game addicts who spend too much time on the couch, I think they're just as disqualified as drunkards to serve as elders because they, they, they suffer from a core problem, which is they are mastered by their appetites rather than being master of their appetites. The next word that appears in the text is the word self-controlled. The word similar to the last, meaning the avoidance of extremes and the careful consideration for responsible action. The word has special reference to a man's decision-making ability. An elder must be capable of making wise decisions, and that requires the ability to control and restrain one's flesh. For instance, a man who is not self-controlled is unable to restrain his lust and very well may enter into an affair with a church member. A man who is not self-controlled will be unable to restrain his desire for material things, and he may buy a car that he can't afford and run up a credit card bill that he can't pay off. A man who is not self-controlled will be unable to distinguish what is best from the church from what is best for him, and thus he will be unable to make a decision that is good for the body as a whole. Elders cannot be such men. Third, he must be respectable. Respectability is the the outward expression of the inward sober-mindedness and self-control. Or put another way, a sober-minded and self-controlled person will act respectably. Fourth, he must not be a drunkard. Now what Paul stipulates here is not that an elder must abstain from alcohol altogether, but rather that he must not be addicted to wine, as the New American Standard puts it, or given to drunkenness, as the NIV puts it. The Greek word is par oinos, par alongside of oinos is wine, one who sits long beside wine. You get the image of a guy who's just slumped over the bar, inebriated, intoxicated, indecent. Now again, the portrait that Paul is painting is of a man who is able to master his flesh and exercise moderation in all things. He's not mastered by his passions and his appetites. The next quality which must describe an elder is found in the the last three of those Greek words. They belong together. They're found in verse 3. An elder is not violent, but he's gentle and he's not quarrelsome. I think it's best to take these three together. One One presenting a positive quality, he's gentle. 
and two, presenting negative qualities. He's not violent and he's not quarrelsome. Gentle means not insisting on every right of the letter of the law or custom. He's yielding, he's kind, he's courteous, he's tolerant. In matters that are not issues of biblical conviction, the elder doesn't you know, stiffen his neck and stick out his chest and insist on my way or the highway. He's not that kind of guy. And he's certainly not going to fight over matters of indifference, which is where the next two words come in. He's not violent. The King James has that word translated as striker. I think the New American Standard has a good word, pugnacious, from which we get the word pugilist. He's not a boxer by temperament. It refers to those who are quick to settle matters with their fists. But I don't think the word only need to refer to physical violence. I think it could easily be applied to verbal abuse as well, someone who beats up other people with his words. An elder, an under-shepherd of Christ, cannot be a bully. He cannot be a browbeater. Bullies are not qualified to shepherd the flock of Christ. And he cannot be quarrelsome. You know, those, you know those guys who are just always itching for an argument? They're always, they're always longing for a fight or a controversy. It's like that just really gears them up and stokes them up. Yeah, elders can't be those guys. Contentious, argumentative men do not make good elders. They make good heretics, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. An elder cannot be afraid of conflict when the need arises, but he doesn't go seeking it out. So the picture that we get is that of, is of a man who can disagree without arguing and losing his temper. He can state his case clearly and raise objections gently without yelling and name-calling. In short, he needs to be a man who has a handle on his temper. You can't have short-fused men in the eldership. Next, an elder is a hospitable man. The word hospitable literally means loving strangers. And it's sometimes a difficult concept to bring over from the first century to the 21st century. Listen to John Stott. He says, in those days, there were no hotels comparable to those we are familiar with, and roadside inns were scarce, dirty, unsafe, and unsavory. So Christian travelers, especially itinerant Christian preachers, needed to be accommodated by the pastor and his wife. Well, today, safe and clean and affordable accommodations are not so difficult to come by, so the situation has changed. So I think perhaps the best way for elders to fulfill their biblical responsibility to hospitality, and church members too, by the way, is by opening their home to share meals with members and visitors and unbelieving neighbors and friends. Uh, these displays of hospitality, letting people into your home, sharing a meal with them, it serves several very useful functions. When we share a meal with fellow church members, we're building into the unity of the church and we're strengthening the fellowship among the communion of saints. When we share a meal with visitors to our church, we're reaching out to them and we're, we're drawing them into our lives and into our fellowship. And when we share a, 
a meal with unbelieving friends and neighbors. We're building a relationship and we're showing them our, our lives and the difference and the transformation that Christ has made by the power of his spirit. And we're, we're building an excellent platform through which to share the gospel. Hospitality is a largely forgotten element of New Testament Christianity, but it is indispensable. And elders need to take the lead and lead by example in this important ministry. They need to be hospitable men. Their homes are open. Their lives are open. Seventh, an elder is a trained man. He needs to be able to teach, according to verse 2. One of the elders' primary functions and responsibilities within the church is as a teacher of the church, and so it only makes sense that he need to be able to fulfill that responsibility. This is an extremely important qualification, but it is so often neglected by churches as evidenced by the doctrinal shallowness or even doctrinal error that characterizes so many congregations. In so many churches, the sheep are weak and malnourished because their shepherds are unable to feed them adequately. And this ought not and must not be. A church must insist upon elders who are capable and qualified teachers. See, I'm afraid that what has happened over the years is that too many churches have confused able to teach with willing to teach. And consequently, they have pastors and elders who are willing to stand before the congregation and preach, but are unable to accurately handle the word of truth. And it's dangerous. So what does it mean to be able to teach? It means two qualities in particular that you ought to insist on. The first is a knowledge of the word of God. An elder must know his Bible backwards and forwards. This means that he needs to have been reading and studying his Bible for some years. He must know the Bible's content and he must be able to fit that content together into a comprehensive and cohesive biblical theology. It doesn't mean that he needs to have a master's degree from a seminary. I think that's a really good idea for a church to require from the man who's going to be the primary preacher and teacher of a congregation, but not all elders need have formal theological education. But in order to be competent to teach the Word and to offer counsel according to the Word, they need to know the Word and be deeply rooted in biblical theology, which means that an elder needs to be a man, no matter his educational credentials, he needs to be a reader and a thinker. So if you're trying to think of a man who might possibly be qualified as an elder in this church, you need to think of guys who are reading books. You need to think of guys who are thinking deep thoughts. But secondly, he needs not only know the Word of God, he needs to possess the ability to communicate the Word of God effectively. When you hear able to teach, I don't want you to think only or even primarily of what I'm doing this morning behind a pulpit in public worship. Elders teach in a multitude of ways that do not take place in this setting. Elders teach any time they meet with a doubting believer and tell them the gospel and help them to gain confidence and assurance in the faith. 
Elders teach anytime they counsel with a sinning member and they show them and demonstrate from the Word of God that such an action is inconsistent with the Christian faith. Elders teach when they answer a question from a member about a passage of Scripture, about something that was said in the Sunday sermon. They teach when they prepare a candidate for baptism. They teach when they lead the Connect to Membership class. And in all of these modes and methods and manners of teaching, however, they need to have a thorough knowledge of the Bible and they need to have the ability to communicate that clearly and effectively to others. When Paul wrote to Titus about the qualifications for elders, he put these two together and he said, an elder must hold firm the trustworthy word is taught. There's the knowledge. So that he may be able to give instruction, there's the communication, in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Elders are teachers and therefore they need to be able to teach. Eighth, an elder must be a contented man. Verse 3 says he cannot be a lover of money. Now, I chose the word contentment because Paul held contentment to be the opposite of greed. The very quality, Paul says, must not characterize the elders of the church. Now, there was a problem in the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is where Paul, or Timothy rather, was located. It was the church that was going to be receiving this letter, 1 Timothy. There was a problem. Evidently, there were some within the church who were in the ministry for money. In fact, I want you to turn over to chapter 6 with me. Just flip over one page. Paul writes to Timothy and to the Ephesian church and he says that there are some in the church who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, there's that same phrase, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. The Bible, God, through Paul, calls every believer to a life of contentment. And elders need to be examples of this contented lifestyle. Here's what I think this means. I think it means that an elder should be one who lives simply, not in luxury, generously. He works in order to give, not in order to get and accumulate all these treasures and toys. And finally, he needs to be a man who lives within his means. Meaning, one of the things, one of the first things that I'm going to ask somebody if I get a nomination for elder is, how much consumer debt have you got? He needs not be burdened by overwhelming consumer debt. And thereby, he he can provide an example to the rest of the church. Next, an elder must be a responsible man. And nowhere is this qualification demonstrated better than in his own 
home. Verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? There are two areas of the man's home life that need to be thought through. First deals with his management of the home. The second deals with his discipline of the children. Manage is the same word that's used with respect to elders in chapter 5 and verse 17, where it's translated as rule. Philip Ryken, a commentator on 1 Timothy, writes that it has two connotations, supervision and nurture. He says this, fatherhood brings both aspects together. The father is the leader who governs the household, but the way he does this is by caring for the needs of each family member. Elders do the same thing in the household of God. They exercise their spiritual authority both by governing and by caring. In other words, a man who doesn't provide for the needs of his own family, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, is not going to be able to provide for the needs of the church, physically, emotionally, or spiritually. Men who are delinquent in their family's bills are not going to be able to handle the church's budget. Men who neglect their wife and children at home are going to neglect the members in church. So management is an area. But the second one is discipline. Paul says an elder must keep his children submissive with all dignity. And those are three very important words. Because it describes the manner in which a father disciplines his children. Lots of fathers try to discipline their children and not all manage it with dignity. He cannot be abusive, either physically or verbally. Rather, he's a man who exercises tender, loving, firm, and consistent discipline such that his children respect, obey, and love him. A man who confronts sin in the life of his own children is more than likely going to be willing to confront sin in the life of the members of the church. But a man who is unwilling or unable to confront his children and hold them accountable for his actions is not going to do so with the church members either. So let me give you some questions to ask of a potential elder as you're thinking through who these might be. Number one, does he manage the affairs of his home in an orderly and respectable manner? Or are his home, his finances, and his children in disarray? Secondly, does he exercise loving headship over his wife? Or does he leave headship of the home to his wife? Because a man who is not able to take the reins in his own home will not be able to take the reins in the church. Does he have authority over his children and does he exercise this authority with all, dis or with all dignity? Or do his children love and respect him? Or do they fear or ignore him? Are his children living in rebellion against him? Listen, because of his negligence in showing them attention, affection, and love, or because of his refusal to exercise discipline. 
Some children are prodigals. And just like the father in Luke 15, sometimes it's best to let the prodigal go the prodigal way and hope that they will come back. I don't think the point of Luke 15 is that the father of the prodigal son was a poor father. I think everything in that, I think everything in that parable shows him to be a godly father worthy of respect. So the question to ask is not, are his children obedient, but rather are his children obedient due to his negligence in refusing to discipline or failing to discipline with all dignity? And the church needs to be able to make distinctions as such. The church is a family, and elders are fathers of that family. And so the kind of father a man is in the home is a sure indication of the kind of elder he's going to be in the church. Two more, and then we'll be finished. An elder is a spiritually mature man, says verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The word translated new convert literally means newly planted. A newly planted tree does not have a deep and developed root system, and so it's easily plucked out or blown over or washed away. But the mature tree is firmly planted, and therefore it's not easily destroyed. And the same is true of Christians. An elder must be a man who has some mileage on his spiritual odometer. He has persevered through trials and tribulations and temptations, and therefore his character is tested and trustworthy, and he has the ability to walk through the members of the church in their trials and temptations and tribulations. He has experienced both victory and defeat, and he's learned much from both. Because there's a danger in ordaining men to the ministry who don't have deep roots. Paul says it's that they, it's the potential exists that they may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Too much responsibility too soon makes one proud, and proud elders are dangerous elders. The same God who judged Satan for his pride will judge elders for theirs. So biblical eldership carries with it a requisite humility which only comes from years of the Holy Spirit teaching you that you're not as awesome as you think you are. So how mature must elders be? Well, Paul doesn't specify, and that's for good reason. What is important is not the number of years since one's baptism. Rather, what matters is the Holy Spirit's sanctifying grace at work in his life, forming within his heart Christ-exalting, cross-focused, gospel-centered humility. In other words, until the man has learned what it means to sing, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt, on all my pride, like we sang this morning, he's not fit to be an elder. The gospel makes men humble, and elders must be gospel men. Finally, an elder must be a reputable man. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace in the snare of the devil. For better or for worse, Elders are the most visible representatives of the church. 
and the surrounding community judges the entire church by the actions and attitudes of its elders. It's just true. Therefore, an elder must be a man who has built a reputation within the outside community for integrity and moral excellence. Why? Because Satan is constantly seeking to discredit the church in the eyes of the world, and the church must not make it easy for him by ordaining men who are enmeshed in scandal. Well, that concludes the Bible's list of qualifications for an elder, and it concludes our time considering this topic. Next week, we'll cover deacons from Acts chapter 6. So let me kind of put an end on this three-week study of eldership before we move on to deacons. An elder must be, let's roll through these. You can just watch on the back of your bulletin. He needs to be a man. He needs to be a called man. He needs to be an irreproachable man. He needs to be a moral man, particularly with regard to his sexual character. He needs to be a self-controlled man who has mastered his passions and appetites and is not mastered by them. He needs to be a hospitable man whose home and life is open. He needs to be a trained man who is able to teach, who knows the Word of God and can communicate it effectively to others. He needs to be a contented man who lives simply and within his means He needs to be a responsible man whose home and children are in order because of the loving, tender, nurturing discipline and management that he provides it. He needs to be a spiritually mature man who has been taught gospel humility over years of persevering through trials and tribulations and temptations. And he needs to be a reputable man who who is well thought of in the community because he's developed this reputation for integrity and moral excellence. 